1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. I've been thinking a lot lately about what energy policy should be for 2016 and how to get some of the candidates, most likely the Republican candidates, given that the Democratic candidates are Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and some guy from my home state of Maryland, my old home state of Maryland that I can't remember the name of, who is possibly even more fossil fuel and therefore more anti-energy than they are. Anyway, how to get some of the candidates to adopt what I call energy liberation policies, policies that reject the whole anti-development, anti-technology framework that exists today and truly liberates American producers and consumers to act freely in the realm of energy and achieve our highest potential. One realm in which this is particularly necessary is in the realm of nuclear energy or nuclear power. So I decided to bring back a guest we had in the past, Rod Adams, publisher of Atomic Insights, who, well, no pun intended in advance, has a lot of insight on the topic. So without further ado, to use the cliche, we will have Rod Adams on the other side talking about energy liberation in nuclear.
0: Hour, Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: We're joined again by Rod Adams, publisher of Atomic Insights. Rod, welcome back to Power Hour. How are
0: you doing, Alex? Doing
1: great. I am in Houston right now. I usually am in Laguna Beach, and I am living in a temperature of 70 degrees right now instead of the 100 degrees outside, thanks to uh, modern energy. So I'm very, very happy that it still exists.
0: Yeah, Houston is one of those places that would not be very populated if there wasn't air conditioning. I grew up in South Florida and uh, definitely realized the value of of that technology.
1: Great. Well, we're going to talk about a technology that could theoretically provide air conditioning for everybody, which is nuclear energy uh, technology. We had you on before to discuss that. Uh, Today, I want to discuss in particular nuclear policy, what it can be and ought to be to unleash the full potential of this technology. And just as as background, um, just for listeners, and my general impression of a lot of what the nuclear industry does today is pretty much ask not for free market competition uh, or for the repeal of certain rules that are unfair to the industry or irrational, uh, but rather trying to get in on... Um, like global warming favoritism and that kind of thing. So I'm really interested in, in what it used to be, because my my understanding and it's certainly been reinforced by you is that there's enormous p- potential for nuclear to compete on the free market, which is what we want. We don't want more expensive energy. We want less expensive energy, with all the the safety and and uh, you know non-pollution benefits of nuclear. So, uh, Rod, let's go back to the beginning when they were first building nuclear power plants. What were the laws that governed them, because people might think, well, they're they're building nuclear power plants. I mean, isn't everybody just completely in danger from these things?
0: Well, uh, I'd like to go a little bit earlier than that as the beginning the The real beginning of, of atomic energy as a technology was well before the Manhattan Project. Uh, there were a number of people who were really excited about unlocking the vast uh, energy reservoir that's stored inside the atomic nucleus. And uh, there were people who were uh, trying to figure out how to unlock that. And in 1934, Enrico Fermi had a brief hint that it might be able to be done. He didn't actually recognize it. A, A lady called Ida Nodak did when she said that perhaps those neutrons that he was hitting uh, uranium with, were splitting uranium. Uh, and then finally about 1939, I, I shouldn't say finally, that's only five years later, uh, some Germans uh, Otto Hahn and uh, uh, Fritz Straussman uh, did an experiment where they uh, used neutrons bombarding uranium and found barium. Uh, which. You know, from people who understand the the periodic table, barium somewhere about halfway between hydrogen and uranium. Uh, they didn't exactly know what was going on, but a lady named Lise or Lisa Meitner uh, interpreted the results and said, "Hey, that's releasing 200 million electron volts for every time you split uranium." Uh, It's an incredible amount of energy when you consider that the most energetic chemical reaction releases a few tens of electron volts, Uh, 200 million electron volts uh, for every reaction is a pretty enormous thing. Unfortunately, that discovery was made in Germany uh, a few years after Adolf Hitler had taken over the country and uh, there was a lot of fear that the Germans would, would try to do something with that energy. Uh, in the US, we, we uh, built an enormous uh, industrial infrastructure during the war to produce materials that could be uh, isolated and purified uh, and really carefully engineered um, to create an immediate explosion. Now the funny thing was, well before we ever were able to create bombs, we created reactors very simple constructions of uh, uranium, uranium oxide and graphite uh, that caused a uh, self-sustaining chain reaction. Now that's a very, you know, fancy or even sometimes scary term to people. But what it simply means is that like fire, uh, you could actually start it, control it, stop it when you wanted to. Uh, And we built uh, the first one, right in Chicago, downtown Chicago, practically at the University of Chicago. And then we built uh, a number of those reactors, three or four, I think, uh, out in the desert in uh, Hanford, Washington, and then uh, I think there was another reactor down in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, those reactors were easily controlled, uh, well under the, the control of the operators. They were used to produce materials But they were also producing heat, and because of the war, we really weren't interested in heat. We were throwing away the heat as fast as we could, using the Columbia River as a cooling source. But engineers recognized right away that anything where you can create vast quantities of heat uh, can be used in conventional heat engines. That's the term that people in the business use for steam plants and gas turbines and and even piston engines. They're all heat engines. They convert heat into mechanical energy. Uh, Now, all of that was recognized by engineers. Unfortunately, there were a group of people, many of them uh, no engineering background at all, uh, some with science backgrounds and most with political backgrounds, who said, Wow, we were able to produce these fantastic weapons that nobody else has. We must keep this information a complete secret. We must protect it from protect the world from this energy, but use it for our own power aggrandizement uh in the u s and so uh from nineteen forty one uh, a curtain of secrecy was put down on uh information about nuclear science and nuclear engineering. And that curtain of secrecy wasn't really lifted until 1953 uh, with the atomic, uh, December of 53, early 54 with the Atomic Energy Act of 1954. So, the first thing that disadvantaged nuclear energy was a complete uh, blackout of information sharing and the ability of innovators to freely experiment and try to figure out how to make beneficial use of this fantastic source of energy um, you know most of the people involved in in uh the 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 bomb programs weren't really that interested in in weapons they were really interested in in uh useful power but you know when there's a war on and you've you're fighting a really ob- obnoxious enemy like adolf hitler and his uh fascists uh you do everything you can to make that war shorter. And of course, the Japanese were no saints. They were uh, pretty obnoxious enemies themselves. And um, You know, there's a lot of people that like to try to blame the US for dropping bombs, but when you look at all the things that were happening in the Pacific at the time, it was the right decision for the right time. So anyway, uh, bottom line, uh, reactors uh, could be developed, but unfortunately, from the very beginning, uh, they were locked up and treated as if only people working for the government with a proper security clearance should be allowed to uh, develop reactor technology. Uh, in f- around '54, we s- the government decided to allow that to be more commercialized. But even then, they asserted ownership of all of the fuel material. The uh, reactor uh, designers and vendors and and uh, utility companies were only allowed to lease the material from the Atomic Energy Commission.
1: Now, is that still the case?
0: No, um, I believe about '63 or so, uh, the government uh, changed the rules to allow utilities to, and I'm going to use air quotes here, to own the fuel. And the reason I use air quotes is that the government still to this day asserts ownership of the residue materials. Um, If the utilities actually owned that material and were allowed to use it in ways that were most beneficial to them, they would generally take that material and recycle it to use the 95% of potential energy that still remains inside that fuel. Uh, But they can't. They aren't allowed to. Jimmy Carter made that idea illegal uh, right after or right at the time when the first commercial, the first full-scale commercial recycling facility was getting ready to get its license to operate. Um, And, you know, since then, there's been some back and forth you know the Reagan rescinded Carter's uh executive order but um that didn't really uh satisfy any investors who lost a great deal of money by the stroke of a pen uh when you, you're you've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in a recycling facility and a single election or single government official can make your industry illegal uh you may perhaps have a reluctance to invest again. And so, so far, there's been no real interest in commercial recycling in the U.S. And and again, part of the issue is that the government believes that the materials that come from a uh, reactor that have been used inside a reactor for, and most of them have a residence time somewhere between five and six years, most of the, Use fuel elements that come out um, they think that that those uh, fuel elements can be uh, recycled into a ma- and isolate some material that could be useful for uh, the production of nuclear weapons and uh, that's really not the case. it's a very complicated technical explanation um, and, and I've been involved in some debates and And what I end up doing is people who say, well, you don't know. You don't have the proper security clearances. We believe we can do it. And I say, well, prove that you've done it. Uh, And they point back to a 1962 vintage test, which doesn't prove a thing. Um, So anyway, the material is useful as fuel. It is extremely useful as fuel. It is really lousy material for a weapon, and there's lots of easier ways to get material for a weapon, including simply mining uranium and purifying it.
1: Yeah, that's what that's what occurred to me. <laughs> you can get it, you can get it from the you know for, from the spent fuel or whatever you want to call it. Well,
0: I mean, you can. It's much easier uh, physically to use uh, fresh uranium that has never been inside a reactor because fresh uranium that's never been inside a reactor can be handled without any protective materials at all safely. Um, if you try to use the spent fuel, you've got to you know, put in some safety precautions, some shielding, some protective procedures to make sure the operators don't get exposed to the fission products that are still inside that material.
1: Right. I want to go back to the University of Chicago reactor. So, if we took a modern perspective on that and say the University of Chicago had a reactor today, or just announced, or it was revealed, I think it would just be a, a national scandal, or at least citywide, it would just be considered, you know, we have this, this death trap in our city. Uh, at the, t- well, let's put it this way what, what should policy be? for something like that if if anything is there anything about it that presents a particularly unique danger that there needs to be a special law for or does it just fall under you know you're not allowed to endanger people by doing it badly
0: it should fall under you are not allowed to endanger people by doing it badly Uh, I do want to remind people that right now there are a couple of major cities in the US that still have reactors operating very near the downtown in particular Boston, Massachusetts, MIT still has a operating reactor. Um, it used to be, and, and I was actually, it used to be that Georgia Tech had a reactor right in downtown Atlanta, but unfortunately that reactor was uh, shut down and defueled uh, because people thought that it would be a danger during the 1996 Olympics. And after the Olympics was over, they never uh, restored the reactor to operation. Um, But, you know, I've operated, by the way, I've operated reactors in downtown Fort Lauderdale um, and downtown Charleston, South Carolina. So.
1: So what are are, just just to get my reactors
0: weren't ships, of course. But.
1: Yeah, which is a whole, of course, fascinating thing that this allegedly dangerous thing you can live in incredibly close quarters to with an unbelievable safety record.
0: I did 11 patrols within 200 feet of a, uh, operating reactor. And it, I mean, that was the furthest I was ever away from it. sometimes I was within a few feet, maybe less than 10 feet, um, from the reactor itself. Uh, and those, those patrols were 90 days long. So, um, you know, I, I've got a little experience. I've actually hugged a reactor before <laughs> they're, they're, uh, fascinating machines they need to be operated safely and properly but they're not, they're not exceedingly dangerous.
1: So for context, what are some things that could exist in a city that are more dangerous than a, a reactor that you should be more concerned about?
0: Uh natural gas pipelines under the streets. That's so uh, that's uh has demonstrated to be uh, more dangerous than a reactor. Uh the city of uh San Bruno can testify to that and so can a number of places around the country uh where uh unbeknownst to anybody uh a, a mere leak in a gas pipeline uh ends up in vaporizing whole city blocks. And in, in San Bruno it was fifty houses were destroyed and, and eight people uh and they didn't even know the gas pipeline existed. Um there's all kinds of uh chemical and and other industrial facilities where um, fertilizer plants those kinds of things that, that can cause uh, significant uh, uh, risk uh, there's you know chemi- chemicals being transported by by truck and car I mean by truck and a train through s- downtown cities I guess there was a, a, a chemical uh, train that was in a tunnel in Baltimore that had some real problems there have been uh, Petroleum cars overturning As a matter of fact, I live within twenty miles of Lynchburg, Virginia, which had a uh, has a train track right through downtown and uh, an oil uh, carrying train uh, derailed and there was a a pretty substantial uh, fire and and uh, spill into the james River um, Fortunately, it was uh happened to be in a place where there weren't buildings right next to it but there are places where that train just a few feet away would have been right next to buildings and caused a lot bigger problem Uh, fires and those kinds of things so there's all kinds of dangers in a modern society Uh, we work very hard to keep those dangers under control we being engineering types the people that that kind of quietly go about keeping the lights on and keeping the air conditioners running and and uh, enabling streets to to be built and traveled upon, and communications, and all that neat stuff. So, so thank an engineer that you're oper- that you're living safely, but there are hazardous materials all around you.
1: And One thing that a lot of those uh, materials or, or devices containing the materials have in common is that they're combustible. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's something. That's why that's they're seem- useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean- it's why they're useful, but. But nuclear, you know, uranium has this unique aspect where it doesn't have to explode or combust to generate lots and lots of heat. So can, can you talk about just that safety advantage?
0: Well, certainly the the process of fission, uh, I once produced a talk called fission is the new fire. Uh, fission is different from combustion uh, instead of uh, it involving just the electron cloud. It involves the atomic nucleus. Instead of having to react uh, carbon and hydrogen with um, oxygen and producing uh, combustion products, you have uranium and other, there's, there's three materials. There's, I call them three superfuels thorium, uranium, and plutonium. Um, that when they're hit with a neutron, the atomic nucleus splits apart and releases between two and three neutrons in that reaction. The release of neutrons enables the reaction to continue. Uh, it's it's the, the chain part of the reaction. Uh, each of those fissions releases 200 million electron volts. It's It's millions of times more energetic than the most energetic chemical reaction because you're uh, using the residual strong force, the force that holds protons and neutrons together inside the nucleus, and you're, you're allowing, them, allowing that force to be converted into pure energy. And so what you're what you, there is a slight mass defect between the um, – or slight difference in mass, let me call it that. It's a little less technical sounding. A little difference in mass between uh, the mass of uranium – uh, that is being split and the fission products are left over afterwards that mass turns into a vast amount of energy using uh, you know using the relationship that Einstein made famous of E equals mc squared where C is an incredibly large number it's uh, 3 times 10 to the 8th meters per second squared so that means you multiply it's 3 times 10 to this or 9 times 10 to the 16th so it's a big big number Um, and, uh, so I, I sometimes give demonstrations where I hold three shooter marbles in my hand, which is roughly the physical size of a pound of uranium and say that that has the same energy as 30 tanker trucks full of petroleum.
1: Now, is that, is that theoretical potential? Is that what you're actually getting from the refined uranium?
0: Um, no, that's, that's what you actually get if you use uranium, if you refine the uranium to the point like my submarine did. Um, Now, in a commercial reactor, uh, we only refine the uranium a little bit. We use about 5% uh, uh, enriched uranium, Uh, so it's 5% of the isotope U-235 that fissions easily with one neutron impact. The other 95% is uranium-238, which Fissions, but it takes two neutrons to do it. The first neutron converts the U 238 into plutonium 239. The second uh, neutron then splits the plutonium 239. Um, Now, so when you look at the actual energy output from a commercial fuel rod, and if you ignore the residual energy that's left over, a single fuel pellet, which is about the size of my pinky, uh, that's nine grams of Uranium dioxide produces as much energy in current technology reactors as burning a ton of coal or 147 gallons of petroleum or 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas. That's a single fuel pellet.
1: And you have a normal size pinky.
0: Um it's not big no I'm I'm a, I'm a, not a, a huge guy so I'm not an NFL football player. So uh my, like I said, it's nine grams. It's uh, it's maybe. Oh, I think they're thirty millimeters in length and maybe twenty millimeters in diameter.
1: So it's just. Well, tell me if you think this is an accurate accurate way to put it. I almost think of it like not just energy generation wise, but also safety wise, uh, going from. Combustion to these nuclear chain reactions is an evolution, and you spare yourself all sorts of problems that the industries generally do a very good job of containing. But nevertheless, you're, you're just always dealing with stuff that can explode. And I, I walk to the beach every morning from uh, um, from the condo I live in, and I see natural gas pipeline right on the ground. And I think, you know what? There's in non-zero chances could explode. Now, it's extremely low, but if there's nuclear you know, if there's some sort of you know nuclear plant there, I would not have the same amount of fear because I would think, well, even if something did go wrong, it, you know, it would it would involve overheating. It would take a long time. Uh, it could be dealt with versus bam and I'm gone. Uh,
0: you, ab- absolutely, uh, one of the 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 real advantages of this compact nature of the fuel source is that we can afford to surround. The fuel and its and the reaction with a, a large number of layers of protection. Um, the, typically, a commercial reactor today has the the fuel pellets are put into a a, a tube of corrosion resistant material called cladding that's made of zircaloid. The fuel elements themselves are put inside of a pressure vessel that. Um, somewhere between 6 and 10 inches in thickness, uh, made out of uh, carbon and stainless steel. Um, That pressure vessel is then put into a a lot of concrete foundation and shielding and that kind of stuff. And then it's in a building that has a base mat that's perhaps 4 feet thick with rebar. This is big around as my forearm. Uh, Very tightly woven rebar, by the way. Uh, and then that it's, that whole building has got, um, uh, a thick, uh, somewhere usually like a, an AP 1000 has got a, an inner steel, uh, containment, which is nearly an inch thick of steel. I think it's seven eighths of an inch thick steel, something like that. Um, and then outside of the steel containment, you've got four feet thick concrete, uh, in an in AP one thousand circumstances, they use sandwich um, concrete, which has steel plates on the outside and then some rebar and, and concrete packed in the middle of that. It's a very uh, robust construction. The testing for that is pretty impressive. I've, it was done by uh, Purdue University, and it was pretty amazing what they were able to subject that material to without having it be damaged. Um, so. You know, that's having the ability to surround and put layers on. Now, uh, the submarine I was on didn't have concrete, but we had layers as well. And we felt very safe with the reactor uh, providing its heat. And then, you know, we're a little bit more concerned, quite frankly, about the risk of steam line ruptures than we were about the risk from the reactor. Um, energetic steam is not a good thing to mix with people.
1: So, this raises an interesting, interesting issue of policy because you can say it's true. There's something about the nature of of the energy production that allows you to more efficiently surround it with safety measures, and then there's the non-combustibility of it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the desire for quote safety measures, or at least the alleged desire for that has led to things becoming far more expensive than I think they should be. So because you can you can invent as many quote safety measures as you want and you can mm-hmm. keep adding on things and adding on things. And it seems like the the rational policy is to have some sort of general threshold of safety or risk in the society and then apply that equally uh, to all the technologies. But from my understanding, nuclear is just held to, an insane standard and not that it even makes it safer so can you talk about how the safety standards have evolved or devolved and how that relates to price because if you look at price curves of this technology it's the kind of thing that that goes way up over time even though the core elements have not become more expensive whereas most technologies go down over time
0: good question the let me see if I can uh address it in, in steps. Um, part of the problem is that the business model of producing energy from nuclear materials is a different business model than the business model of producing energy from f- burning uh, large quantities of combustible materials. Uh, in, in producing power from, say, burning natural gas or burning oil or burning uh, coal even, if you look at the total cost of that, or, and and I always like to remind people that one man's cost is another man's revenue, so if you look at the total revenue associated with uh, producing electricity, for example, because there's other things that you can do with it, the guy who supplies the fuel walks away with somewhere between 60 and 90% of all the money that's required for that operation, uh, the machinery is actually fairly uh, low cost because you can amortize it over a much longer period of time. The people are not that big a cost, but buying fuel is a huge part of the cost. And it's and of course in the fuel side, it's not just the guys that dig, dig it out of the ground. It's also the there's a lot of revenue associated with moving it from the the source to the power plant whether it be railroads or pipelines or whatever, the the transportation uh, is is quite uh, intensive, quite a big part of the overall cost. For example, if you burn coal in Texas and you want to source your coal from the low sulfur uh, Powder River Basin, you may pay uh, $10 a ton or maybe $30 a ton for fuel and $90 a ton to move it. To Texas it's just one example um but so anyway so, so the business model and and who where the revenue is going is completely different when you've got a very compact fuel source that only needs uh one delivery every 18 months and it can be loaded onto roughly three to six uh over the road trucks uh rather than say being requiring a uh 100 train car train to deliver fuel every day to the same size power plant. Uh, you can imagine that who's getting the revenue and all that is completely different. Um, when we started building nuclear plants, um, all of the customers were rate, regula- rate regulated utilities, whose although it's not really the way the model supposed to be uh used, the smart money was, hey, we need to have the capital cost of our uh, reactors as high as possible because we get reimbursed based on a return on investment. So if we're going to make 10% on the cost of our power plant, it actually is not a problem to us if the power plant cost doubles because we make 10% on a bigger number. Um, now, that's not really what the the people who designed the system were trying to encourage, but that's the way that those who you know, looked at the rules said, well, okay, <laughs> so we're not really that concerned. If the government, if the regulator requires us to add another system, oh darn, that increases our capital cost, and the guy who, who designs and sells that system says, oh darn, the regulator forced us to add this safety system, we had to go out and hire some engineers and of course we have a markup on their time and we had to go out and buy some more equipment. Of course, we have a markup on that and of course, you know what I'm saying. Um, the regulation, there was nobody who was trying to say, hey, why is this cost being added? I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not keen on paying higher cost and you know maybe fight back a little bit against the, the ratcheting regulations. On the other side, in addition, there were people who were kind of happy that the cost of building nuclear plants was being driven up. Uh, Competitors often like it when their competition is disadvantaged. Uh, So that came to play. For a a number of years, there was an organization called the National Coal Policy Council, which was really the only anti-nuclear organization operating from about 1957 and 1970 and they were constantly testifying to the Atomic Energy Commission that they needed to uh, add uh, backups and safety and and in, um, uh, inspections and, and we, we needed to move these power plants out into the same boondocks where we were building coal plants. Now we put the coal plants out in the boondocks out of the city because they had these Smokestacks that were filling the air with soot, um, but we moved the nuclear plants out of the city, uh, not because they were would have been bad neighbors, but because people were told they should be afraid of them. There was a project, interestingly enough, to build a nuclear plant in Manhattan, not in Manhattan. It was a uh, can't remember which borough it would have been in. Um, it was I I. I need to go back and remember the details, but it was a a pretty big controversy for a number of years, and finally uh, consolidated. Edison gave up on the idea, um, but I can tell you that a nuclear plant's a pretty good neighbor. It doesn't make much noise. It doesn't need a smokestack. Uh, it doesn't need much in the way of deliveries. It doesn't need a pipeline through your neighborhood. Uh, all it needs is you know let the trucks come in a couple of times every eighteen months and and that's all the fuel it needs. And oh, by the way, it, you know, it, it does employ an awful lot of people. Um, and I know that there are people that, that don't like that idea, but I'm, I'm a pretty liberal guy. I like the idea of having, uh, infrastructure that needs people to, uh, be around and to, and to do paperwork and all that stuff. Cause that means there's lots of people having good jobs and they can help support the local community, provide good education and all kinds of neat stuff.
1: Okay, well, I'm I'm not a liberal guy, so we can okay. table we can well, table that aspect uh, of it. But it's so a that,
0: bipartisan it's a bipartisan benefit here. Really as is. long
1: as you value human life,
0: yes, I value human life, and I value human prosperity, and I value humans having jobs.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, but I think a lot of the opposition to this is not really valuing human life in, in, in a deep sense, which we talked about um, yep. well, both on your podcast and on on my podcast. But to get to the issue of policy, what... So, so there's this issue of the cost, so we can call the cost-plus accounting system. So the, yeah, that's, this, this is an some incentive of Yeah, problem. some
0: of that's gone away. Um, here's... if 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 I was to be asked what policy changes... Need to be made to enable nuclear to prosper. Um, I don't think, first of all, I don't think that the that nuclear needs any uh, particular um, uh, payments from taxpayers to the industry. That's we we don't need that at all. Uh, what we really need to do is for the government to get out of the way um, and and think about really applying the mission of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is to uh, contribute to the, to health and prosperity and to the cleanliness of the environment, and to recognize that nuclear is a pretty good uh, technology for doing that, so what they need to do is not um, think about how to make sure that nobody ever accuses them of being pro-nuclear. Uh, they should be as pro-nuclear as the FAA is pro-aviation. Um, now. They definitely have some responsibility for ensuring safety of individual designs, uh, just like the FAA does. They have some responsibility for making sure that that uh, you know fly-by-night companies don't come in who don't know what they what they're doing, and re- you really can put the the population at risk if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so there are some 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 oversight uh, responsibilities there, but. You know, right now, if somebody comes up with a really neat, innovative way to to do nuclear, based on a lot of history and science and testing and and research and all that neat, all that stuff that's that, in many cases we can mine libraries in the U.S. for vast amounts of wealth that has been suppressed and kept out of the market. Uh, if we go back to and mine libraries, which a lot of my friends have been doing in molten salt reactors and high-temperature gas-cooled reactors and uh, fast breeder reactors, um, we could uh, move fairly quickly. Unfortunately, the right now, and this is as a gift, oh, by the way, of some very, uh, some heroes of the conservatives, uh, David Stockman and Ronald Reagan, that innovator has to pay the Nuclear Regulatory Commission a fee. For every bureaucrat, oh, I'm sorry, every professional staff hour uh, associated with reviewing the license. Now, the fee is not inconsequential, it's $279 per professional staff hour. And a friend of mine is uh, working for a company called Newscale, and he told me that not too long ago they had a meeting. Uh, at the NRC, they had no control over how many regulators came to the meeting. The meeting lasted five hours and the NRC had on average about 25 people in the room at a time. Now yes. think about run run the calculator through your head. Now this is a company that doesn't have any revenue yet. Um, they're, they're still probably five years away from having any possibility of actually more like seven years away from having real honest to goodness revenue from selling electricity. Now, the company may get some revenue from the customers while they're building the plants, but uh, that's pretty hard nut to crack when they've been doing that. By the way, since 2009, they've been meeting with the NRC trying to uh, get uh, closure on some some modifications to the rules that they need to be able to build their much smaller, much safer, uh, much simpler power plants.
1: You mentioned how in a broad sense what's needed is for the government to get out of the way. Uh, But I'd like a clearer idea of of the major ways it's in the way now and really how to get it out of the way. Because from my perspective, it seems just insanely bad compared to what it could be. In terms of driving up cost and suppressing new innovation to the point where it's just you know we're getting progress or regress at the speed of government
0: well there's actually a, a pretty good there's there's two pretty good regulatory models uh for how you could do uh nuclear regulation one's in canada and one's in the U, uk um and the difference there is that they have a performance-based uh, criteria, not uh, a deterministic um, criteria where the the rules in the U.S. were written for large light water reactors, and everybody who's not a large light water reactor has to convince the regulator that their uh, assumptions are correct and that they're going to do things uh, that are safe, and they have to prove that they don't need to uh, follow the specific rules associated with large light water reactors before the regulators will um, make the changes necessary. And right now, each of those innovators has to uh, apply for individual exemptions. And some of the rules are pretty, pretty onerous. For example, every reactor in the US, every operating reactor, has to pay an annual license fee. And because for, you know, the last 30 years, all the reactors operating uh, in the commercial sense were roughly the same size, somewhere between 600 and 1,400 megawatts, um, the NRC, and it's because I guess doing math is is hard, um, and even in today's where there's spreadsheets, uh, they said, well, we're just going to assign a single... license fee, annual license fee for every reactor, and everybody pays the same fee, and that's fair, right? Um, Well, not really, not if you are trying to pay a $4.5 million annual license fee with a reactor that produces 50 megawatts, and the guy next to you is producing 1,500 megawatts, and he pays the same fee. His reactor is a heck of a lot bigger and requires a heck of a lot more um, effort to, to, to be to review it that's um, just one example uh, right now that the the NRC requires an on-site uh, regulator for each power plant and one more uh, site regulator so if you've got a single uh, reactor on a single site you need two full-time uh, NRC employees at your site now, one particular small reactor vendor wants to put twelve of his small reactors in a, on a single site. Well, that would mean he'd have thirteen under current rules you'd have thirteen nRC regulators on site full time um, that's That's pretty onerous <laughs> but and and the industry or the the innovators the the small guys. I've been asking the NRC to clarify how they're going to handle this. I think they first started asking about 2008. It's 2015, and the NRC still hasn't produced any rules to help us understand what they're going to require. So, you know, though that's some of the things that we need. to. There's all kinds of specifics that I could go into, but really need to get the government to to admit that nuclear is good which they did one time in 1954 when they passed the Atomic Energy Act. And and somehow by about 1974, um, when the NRC was created from the Atomic Energy Commission in a reorganization driven by the Nixon administration, by the way, um, the NRC has not really uh, accepted the idea that nuclear is good. They say they're agnostic about nuclear energy. And uh, sort of, again, sort of like having an FAA regulator who's agnostic about whether or not people should fly. Maybe, you know, maybe John Madden should be an FAA regulator. Is he against flying? Do you know John Madden? Well, you're maybe not a football fan. John Madden is famous for, uh, never flying. He takes a motor home wherever he goes to his, uh, TV gigs cause he just doesn't like to fly.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, that sounds vaguely familiar. I'm, I'm I'd say, a, a <laughs> low to medium level football fan. Once, as a kid, I was much bigger, but then I discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu and lost interest in all the ball sports. Uh, but, so, if we, let's say, if we take Canada or UK as an example, you can pick one, how how low are their prices? Because part of what I'm I, I want to drive at is, what could the future hold in terms of of energy prices, if we truly had a free market in energy where nuclear could compete.
0: Well, I won't say that that Canada and the UK's regulatory system has been any more successful in enabling uh, new nuclear power plants to be built. Um, neither one of them have had much in the way of new nuclear plants built. Uh, the UK's uh, current regulations are relatively new. They They went through a process of of getting uh, agreements across the political spectrum that they really needed as an island nation that was running out of its North Sea gas uh, fields to recognize that nuclear was something they should encourage. So their regulations are relatively new, but they have been able to uh, approve a couple of designs in a much shorter period of time than what the NRC took. We've got right now two um well actually three but but two new newer uh licensed designs for or certified designs they have a design certification for the ESbWR and the ap1000 and each one of those required uh an investment of roughly a billion dollars and and 13 or to 15 years of interaction with the nrc before they finally got their design certification um and they those were being supported by huge companies like general electric and westinghouse and uh in some cases they actually they got a fair amount of money from the uh n nuclear power 2010 program which was a doe program um but there are companies right now um Terrestrial Energy, Thorcon, um, TerraPower, Power, uh, Trans Trans uh, Atomic, that are that are producing um, economic analysis and, and new scale, producing economic analysis of their designs and the cost that they should cost, and coming up with the idea that for these new plants, they should be able to produce uh, electricity for a levelized cost of somewhere between four and eight cents a kilowatt hour. Um, And that's with kind of the early versions. And as you mentioned, if you uh, regulate nuclear without the idea of ratcheting up costs, uh, you know, and recognizing it's already safe and thinking about ways to to make things uh, more efficient, manufacture more efficiently and and, uh, take advantage of the economy of scale and manufacturing, series production, I believe you can get those costs down uh, to uh, an even lower number, less than $0.05 a kilowatt hour. Um, And in many cases, they can uh, move those same costs to things like, Uh, ocean shipping, you know, we have a pretty fair, uh, history of safe operation of nuclear power plants at sea in the U S. Um, if you could power a ship for the equivalent of say six or eight cents a kilowatt hour, that's a heck of a lot cheaper than burning diesel fuel, especially low sulfur diesel fuel. And which is what they all burn today.
1: So is anyone trying to do that?
0: Uh, Not loudly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, you've just got this perfect... I mean, you know, we already have this track record of giant ships having this amazing power source. One would think that it could be applied to giant container ships.
0: It could be. And uh, the, the easiest way to do that would be if the government that owns the technology today recognize that, you know, we built a pretty nice commercial aviation industry in the U S based on, uh, pretty quick transition from military developed technology in aircraft engines to commercial, uh, technology technology aircraft engines There's very few differences. You do a few things to it to make sure that it's, it's, uh, you know, appropriate for the commercial market. But, you know, there are what we have in submarines and, and aircraft carriers are simply engines. They're they're not weapon systems, they're engines. And uh, they should be allowed to be commercialized um, and take advantage of many of the economies that we've already got in terms of uh, machinery and, and trained operators and, and, uh, Qualification programs and quality assurance programs and all kinds of stuff you know I would hope that nobody would would suggest that a reactor that has already been operating at sea under the u s navy for a number of years would need to go through a full n r c licensing process. That would be pretty ridiculous right
1: yes, although obviously that doesn't exclude. NRC behavior does not exclude the ridiculous. So what about, I'm curious, well, I have t- two, two more application questions. What about the possibility for smaller engines? Like how, how small can you go? Like how close can we get to a, a nuclear-powered automobile?
0: Uh, nuclear-powered automobiles are, are uh, something that maybe my grandchildren or great grandchildren would think about doing. Um, we've got a long way to go before we we have uh, shrunk the technology. One of the biggest problems is that um, the inherent uh, characteristics of a of a fission reactor is that it needs to have a pretty substantial shield around it to protect uh, you from the the radiation that's released by both the fission reaction itself and by some of the very short-lived uh, high gamma fission products. Gamma uh, radiation can only be stopped by thickness, by density. Uh, you need a lot of thick material. So, there's a minimum weight for a safe reactor, uh, one that's close to the operators. Now, on, I would say, you know, it's which I'd have to go through a lot of analysis to show you. But you could you could uh consider uh an eighteen wheeler as a potential small uh reactor uh customer. Uh certainly you can you can think of a, a directly nuclear powered locomotive um and uh then once you get above that size anything's fair. nuclear powered tugboats, nuclear powered Cruising ships, uh, you know, you don't need a, a, a very large ship to be able to carry the weight that you're you're talking about. The U.S. Navy built a a small uh, research submarine that was only four hundred tons total, called the NR one. It operated for about thirty years, and it had a small reactor as a power source. But you know, four hundred tons you know, allowed them to put maybe. I think it maybe had a hundred tons associated with a power plant, including shielding. Mm-hmm. Um, but a hundred tons is a pretty big w- number for an automobile. It's a pretty small number for a ship, though.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if you could, I mean, if there would be incentive to have you know larger vehicles because they would never need to be refueled, or they certainly wouldn't need to be refueled. Well, I'm not, sure be, I'm not sure I'd
0: want to. I'm not sure I'd want to be on the road with much larger, heavier vehicles. You know, th- there is a certain um, uh, limit if you want to have roads that carry both passenger cars and and uh, large vehicles you want to have not too much difference between the two uh, we're already pretty close to the what gets a little bit scary to me when we have uh, trucks that have two or three trailers on them um, those guys are a little bit too big to be playing on the same road as my uh, Volkswagen Jetta.
1: Yeah, well, that's a whole discussion of what what the future of the roads holds and and what it should yeah. be versus what it is. Last question is: What about uh, desalination plants? I've heard that nuclear is good for desalination, but I've I've never fully explored it.
0: Well, we have good desalination technology um, today. It's it it uses electricity to drive pumps, to push uh, salt water through um, a series of of, uh, very tight filters. Um, It's called reverse osmosis. Uh, So if you have cheap electricity, you have a a ability for desalination. And if you have power plants that produce uh, cheap electricity and like to run full time 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year with a, an occasional shutdown for refueling, um, it would be useful to uh, use off-peak power to run desalination plants that can just simply fill up reservoirs uh, for the times when you really want water. Um, so, yeah, desalination is a is a, a real um, potential market in those areas where you know god doesn't do it for you you know in, in places where it rains a lot you don't need desalination you know it you, it's hard to beat free it's you know stuff that just falls on you yeah that's
1: definitely true but i think it is well obviously there's you know where I'm i a, where i live i'm an
0: east coast guy so uh, you know we get we get rain you know we got rivers we got lakes we've got you know plenty of water most of the time um and if we have a drought now and again, we can just pipe it from another place that's got water. I think you're a West Coast guy. Yes. You guys have chosen to live in a desert. So yes. perhaps you ought to think about the fact that water's not free there.
1: Yes. So it's very comforting that it can be manufactured if need be.
0: And when whenever anybody uh, tells me that there's limited water on the earth, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I spent an awful lot of time at sea. And uh, this earth is, has got lots of water. <laughs> Just some of it's a little salty.
1: Right. Which yeah, throughout history was an insurmountable challenge in terms of drinking. But if we have the right technology, including energy technology, then all the water is potentially uh, ours, which is, yeah. which is...
0: Well, I mean, remember, on, on a submarine, we had a reactor, one reactor. It enabled us to power the ship, supply uh, air conditioning, heating, ventilation, uh, refrigeration, uh, powered our computers, and we also made our own water uh, from salt. We converted some of that fresh water that we made and uh, uh, used it to produce uh, fresh oxygen because we'd been consuming oxygen. So, we uh, we split apart water using electricity, which is a known technology. It's been known for probably 200 years or 150 years. Um, And, uh, and we, we threw away the hydrogen, of course, you know, some, some people may have wanted to use the hydrogen for, for things, but for us, it was just a dangerous thing to have on board. So we threw that away. Um, but you know, that having uh, extra power makes you, gives you the ability to live comfortably. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of, I would not have been a very good diesel submariner. I like to take showers. I don't particularly like hanging around with smelly people um and and it, and on diesel boat they had to you know it, it's, it's pretty disgusting thinking about what they had to do to get shower water uh so
1: all right well that's an interesting note to end on but i think we'll we'll end there just the the vision though it's a good it's a good <laughs> vision just of this it's a, almost a microcosm of of the world where you've got this you've got this incredibly compressed source of energy, where even on a, on a ship, you can have everything you want, including doing sophisticated things like uh, desalinating the water. And even our, most, conve- even our you know, most dense source of energy that we use mostly, diesel, can't do anywhere near that. And then we're in a society where people are saying, well, we should use by far the least dense uh, least <laughs> consistent sources of energy, and somehow try to harness those. Now imagine, you know, you on a ship with solar panels. What the bathing situation <laughs> would
0: be? I've been on. I've been on a sailboat with solar panels. Um, fortunately, my, my, my sailboat also had a diesel engine that could uh, charge the batteries when the solar panels happened to be covered by the shade from the sails.
1: Yeah, they they run. Into and the, when the
0: sun went panels. down. It, for some reason, the sun goes down every day, and I just I don't, know, I don't understand why people want a power source that has 365 force shutdowns every year.
1: <laughs> and quite long ones as well. Yes,
0: yeah, a minimum of 365 force shutdowns every year, by the way, because that doesn't count for clouds.
1: Yeah, definitely. All right, Rob, All right. We'll- Thank you so much. Um, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience learned a lot, and we will be incorporating some of this knowledge in the uh, Energy Liberation Plan.
0: Okay, great. And uh, just, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you give a quick plug again. I was
1: about to ask.
0: I, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm my, my thoughts are available on atomicinsights.com. I've uh, been publishing that since 1995, and uh, the Atomic Show podcast uh, is available f- through that same site. So I hope that uh, people who are curious come and visit. You can also find me on Twitter at, at @atomicrod.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Rod.
0: Take care, Alex.
1: Thanks again to Rod Adams for being on the show. Always interesting to hear his perspective, his personal experience, his knowledge of history, his ideas. Uh, so definitely we'll have him on again at some point in the future. In terms of takeaways, well, I think I'll just refer you to the Energy Liberation Plan, which is a document I'm working on uh, tomorrow. I'm recording this on August 18th, and it should come out August 19th. I'm going to be publishing the first preview of the Energy Liberation Plan in my Forbes column. So this is a good time to mention all the different ways you can follow us. Uh, Make sure to uh, subscribe to the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. That's the most important. Also, you can follow us on Facebook, either me or I Love Fossil Fuels, or Center for Industrial Progress. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can follow me on LinkedIn, even on Instagram at alexepstein22. Uh, But most important, go to the homepage, subscribe at industrialprogress.com. And we'll be linking to the Forbes article there tomorrow, and that'll be a preview, and then we'll be launching the full energy liberation plan with lots more cool stuff on October 2nd. So check that out. Let me know what you think. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at net. Next week, we will be back. We are back now weekly. How exciting is that? We'll be back with another great show another great guest so until then i'm alex epstein this has been power hour
0: power hour life liberty and the pursuit of energy power hour the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues